I started out as an office boy, just mail, mailing Joe Namath posters and polishing the Super Bowl trophy on Monday mornings. That was my job. Doing a fashion show at this mall in New Jersey. And, and were Saturday you one morning. of the models? What? No, no, no. I was doing the birds were doing it and love was doing it. And a lot of people were doing it on Sunset Boulevard in those days. But we were the first ones to record it. Yeah, what happened was um, I was doing a, a show at, at, in uh, Pennsylvania at Lehigh University. There was a blizzard. And it was Janis Joplin, Big Brother, Steve Miller Band, and Wilson Pickett, his band. Oh. And we got stood in for three days. So we all, and they put us in an old dorm for three days. And I just got to hang with Janice and everybody. I had, we had a lot of hash. Hey, this is Party Like a Rockstar podcast, and I'm your host, Joel. Today's episode is brought to you by Misha's Kind Foods. They're an LA-based small business making the world's finest non-dairy cheese on the market today. They're lactose-free, paleo, keto, kosher, perev, and 100% vegan. If you like what you see, check out the next video. If you like this video, please subscribe and like by clicking the little round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or our other guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle is joelrody. If you haven't already read my book, Memoir of a Roadie, it's now available through Amazon and paperback Kindle or as an audiobook. I hope you enjoy the show. Jim Pons is an American bassist, author, and singer who most notably played for The Leaves, The Turtles, and The Mothers of Invention. He also worked for the New York Jets from 1973 to 2000. His autobiography is titled Hardcore Love, Sex, Football, and rock and roll in the kingdom of God. My second guest is Richard Borders. He worked on some of the first concert touring light shows in the 1960s. He's done gigs with The Who, Pink Floyd, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Harry Chapin, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Doors, which I said a second time, but they are a great band. <laughs> the band, <laughs> Janis Joplin, Fleetwood Mac, The Monkees, Yes, and Jethro Tull. He even worked on a little tiny show in 1969 called Woodstock. So my first question is going to be to you, Richard. And my question to you is, what do you think about Pat Boone? <laughs> I've done shows with him, actually. Oh, yeah? He really wasn't that bad, you know. When you grew up on songs like Moon River and things that he, you know, if your parents listened to it, you listened to it, you get into everything pretty much, you know. <laughs> so there was a lead in here, obviously. So, Jim, how did Pat Boone get into the mix with you? He... He wandered into a club we were playing on Sunset Strip and the Leaves at Ciro's and introduced himself to us. And uh, he was interested in signing young talent to a production company that he was just starting. Huh. You guys he, all knew yeah. who he was? What? You knew who he was, though. I knew who he was. Yeah, I liked his old songs from the 50s. He was a crooner and he had white shoes, too. He wore his white shoes to Ciro's that night. <laughs> And uh, we were really uh, impressed that he was interested in us, and we signed a record deal with him. I don't know That's how not. he heard about us, but came in that night, and uh, we met with him, and we signed a contract the next day. That's <laughs> cool. What a, so another one. So the Lee is you were the first to record Hey Joe. 
Um, I started researching the song of Hey Joe. You you did some stuff with Jimi Hendrix, Richard, so there's a connection. But um, my question is, you guys re-recorded it several times. Did you do that with other songs? And what made you want to stick with Hey Joe? What was telling you that maybe there was something to the song? We didn't do it with any other song but that one. And uh, it's tough to remember why we did it three times. We weren't satisfied with the first two, obviously. Um, and we actually changed lead guitar players between the second and the third one. So he might have brought something to the table that we didn't have prior. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I think the third version had that that break in the middle that nobody else had, which made it a little more commercial than the birds were doing it and love was doing it. And a lot of people were doing it on Sunset Boulevard in those days. Oh, got but it. We were the first ones to record it. And, uh, and how'd you hear about the track? The track, the song. Yeah. So that was it. So I was researching it's credited to Billy Roberts. Some people say he didn't write it. Oh, uh, Neil Miller, maybe Dino Valenti. I know we, we it was never uh, never really uh, settled who wrote it, but we weren't really interested in that. The birds, we're the birds did a version, and we loved the way it sounded, and we just recorded. We wanted to record it. They were doing it live at Ciro's, and we yeah. thought we needed to record it, and we did, and. It was released on Mira Records, which was one of Pat Boone's friends. And it got to be a big hit. That's neat stuff. That's really neat. Did you see uh, Jimmy play Hey Joe, Richard? Oh, yeah. A couple different times he played it. You know? And he never played the same. He'd always you know, change things around and jam in the middle of it with that song. Right? Yeah. I saw the birds do it, too. Yeah. I, I oh, think really? I showed the birds. They were one of my favorite bands. Yeah, mine too. I love the birds. Yeah. yeah. Like well, they're, all, uh, they're part of the LA scene too, right? Weren't they all here? Yeah. Yeah. So were you hanging out with them in Laurel Canyon type thing or not so much? Uh, I didn't hang out with them. No. We knew Brian McLean, who's their road manager. You must know him. I know the name. Sure. He uh, He's the one that showed us how to play the chords to Hey Joe. He oh. lived in Laurel Canyon. I don't I I didn't know. I think Roger lived up there somewhere, but yeah, we were in that in that circle of people. Okay. Yeah. Um Ed Sullivan show with the turtles, what was that day like? Uh, the day it was a long day actually. We started rehearsing in the morning with the uh, stage crew and the sound technicians and we did it. Uh, we did it to a pre-recorded music track, and Mark and Howard sang the lead live, and it was all very exciting. We didn't see Ed until the minute before the show went on the air live, and I remember it was remarkable. He had red hair. I had never seen him on. <laughs> I never saw him on a color television, but it was a thrill. I mean, it was. You know, one of the great moments of my musical career, Ed Sullivan show. That's fantastic. How did you get? How did you the? How did you get into the Turtles? What? So the 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 bass player left, right? And then you jumped in immediately. He, yeah, he he quit 
to try to produce the monkey. He became the record producer for the monkeys. And I had known Mark and Howard and, you know, we played together up and down with Sunset Strip and it was very seamless. They came over, they sent Johnny Barbada, the drummer to my house and he told me they needed a bass player and they wanted, they wanted it to be me, so. They, right, knew so my, they knew I was able to, I didn't have to audition. I just had to start rehearsing with them. Oh, so time and place. Time when the leaves were starting to fail. You know, we were just college kids acting like rock guys. And uh, <laughs> we, we just didn't uh, have what it takes to, to, to make, to last. Yeah. So I was ready to do something else and it happened at a good time. Yeah. So what drove you to it? So for you, Jim, what drove you to playing the bass? Was, was mom and dad musicians? And then Richard, what was your fascination with lasers and light shows? And Well, I had always been involved with different lighting effects and stuff. Even when I was a kid, I used to have Christmas tree lights blinking to cut out the famous monsters of Filmland on the wall. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I used to subscribe to that. I got involved with Edmund Science Scientific. <laughs> And I used to design some of the effects for them. I used to have access to all the Edmund Scientific stuff too. So that's how I kind of fell into it. You know, so I found my first laser and stuff. And Edmund Scientific, they had, they were giving me all kinds of equipment, motors and stuff. And um, I saw helium neon laser. I said, well, I want one of those. So what do you do with that? It's just a dot. I said, I got an idea. I took it home, glued a speaker, a, a mirror to a speaker and bounced it to the music. And that's why I started the laser drawing systems and stuff. It just kind of fell into it. I always loved light. I always had AV projectors and film projectors and was into movies and stuff. So there was an AV company in New Jersey that my grandma knew the owner of. They used to fix all the school stuff. So I get all the overheads and liquids and I supplied the Fillmore East guys, you know, Josh White with his equipment too. So I had always access to equipment and stuff too. So that's how I got all this stuff. I just, I just always loved lights. I fell into doing shows in New Jersey when I was 16. Wow. Yeah. I, my, my grandmother took me to a wrestling match and um, the, there was a sign to them patients in four tops the promoter was doing. So I, I said, so she called the promoter and said, my grandson wants to see that show. So come to the backstage door and ask me. She put me in a side balcony because it was an all black audience in New Jersey. So I was watching the guys do lighting. He introduced me to them. I said, I want to learn. So they go, come to the next show. It was a little Steve Winter's second show ever. Now you couldn't get away with this. They said, climb up that rope ladder, shoot across the pipe, and aim one light at a time. Yeah. And I was a, I was a 16-year-old kid, non-union or anything. And they just let me do it. That's how I learned. Oh, <laughs> I that's neat. Did all these black lights. I did B.B. King and James Brown. And then they started doing shows. And um, I was on in the Ron John Surf team. So I asked the to get the Beach Boys. He did, and it sold out. And they started doing shows in Asbury Park then over the summer. So I just kind of fell into it. That's a fun thing to fall into, especially the time era. The era is amazing. <laughs> Someday when I see you, Richard, we got to talk about famous monsters of Filmland. Yeah. I, I used to subscribe to that. I Forrest was Ackerman. I, I knew Forrest Ackerman, too. Did you? Oh, my God. Yeah. I had his assistant on here with uh, oh, Michael really? Grace. Yeah, Michael Grace wrote Poltergeist, and he's a very close oh, wow. friend of mine. So I had him on with his assistant and then uh, the editor-in-chief of uh, Fangoria. And uh, yeah, it was real fun, man. It was nice guys. It was cool. But yeah, Ackerman, he was telling some Ackerman stories, which was wonderful. 
So, <laughs> yeah, it's neat stuff. So why why uh why the bass? What drove you to music, Jim? Oh well, uh, uh, the Beatles. When I saw uh, them on Ed Sullivan show that day, I thought I was in college. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I that's where you go after you get out of high school. What were you studying in college? Art. But I, I was an art major. I was only two years in, so I wasn't serious about anything. <laughs> I was in a fraternity. I, you know, I, I was just having a good time. And then the Beatles came out, and I realized what it is I wanted to do. And I, I said, I want to be an entertainer, be in a rock and roll band. Did you read the book? Did you read my book? I haven't. Okay. Yeah. Richard did? You still have the Hoffner bass, right? Hoffner, yeah, I still have my Hoffner bass. So I wanted to be Paul McCartney, and I started a band in my fraternity. And I was surprised that didn't know any more music than I did. None of us knew music. Yeah, you played that with the Imagine Show with Maddie and I. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, that was great. We had so much fun at that. Thank you so much. <laughs> you got to do it again. Yeah, we do. So the Mothers of Invention... How did the Mothers of Invention start with you? What uh, what was the process of you joining that band? That same thing. Uh, I knew Frank because he and I had dinner occasionally. He played on Sunset Strip in those days, and we got to be friends. And then when the Turtles died and Flo and Eddie wasn't formed yet, I got the word that Mark and Howard were playing in the new Mothers of Invention creation by Frank, Frank Zappa. I thought that was a pretty remarkable uh, combination of things. And then one day, Mark called me and said, their bass player quit. Frank's bass player quit, and he needed a bass player. So it's the same kind of thing. And uh, he he wanted me to be the guy. So that's what it was. That's all it took. Yeah. So you were at the show, the, uh, the Montreux show with the flair? They say it was a flare gun. I'm not sure it was, but it looked like a sparkler to me. But there was a fire up in the balcony. Yeah, small fire. And then it fell down to the floor and the crowd went crazy and stormed the stage. And we had to run. It caught, it's an old wooden build theater, so it caught fire very quickly. And you guys and we, just, you just sat outside and watched it burn? Yeah, well, we didn't get outside until we thought we were going to be trapped downstairs in the kitchen. And uh, our bus driver broke a glass wall down with his arm. We crawled through a hole in the glass, and then we got outside to the, to the loading dock and stood there with the Swiss fire department. Ooh. Watched it burn down to the ground, yeah. So you lost all your instruments, backline, yes. everything? Yes, instruments, lights. Amps, sound equipment, all Frank's guitars, everything, everything but a cowbell. We found a cowbell the next day. Who a kept the cowbell? Burned up cowbell. Wow. Ironic. And then uh, what about the show when, uh, when he was pushed off the stage? That was the next show we did because we had a two week, we had to have two weeks to rent new equipment and rehearse with it. So, the very first show we played was back in London. Um, I forget the place. I'm drawing a blank on the place. But yeah, it was in the middle of our encore, just like the fire. 
somebody pushed past me on the stage and ran over to Frank and pushed him into the orchestra. Pit. So and you uh, felt the guy come by you? Yeah, he bumped, he bumped me as he ran by me. Wow. And I read it was Timothy something. I don't know. And I turned around and looked where he came from. And the next thing I knew, everybody was standing by the edge of the stage looking down into the orchestra pit. That's where Frank landed. Wow. Turns out the guy thought his girlfriend was having a relationship with Frank and he was he was mad about that and he came on stage and and that was the end of our 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 uh, career with Frank Zappa. We were told he wasn't gonna be able to play again and we we, we dispersed and went back home and I never well I did see him in the hospital before we left London. And that was it. Heavy. And then after that, then you quickly jumped onto the football stuff? No. Mark and Howard had an offer to go on the road with Alex Cooper. We still had Frank's band. We couldn't be the Turtles because White Whale Records owned the name and we were in a lawsuit with them. So uh, they just they took the name from our two road managers who we called the fluorescent leak and Eddie. And um, we went back on the road with the, the Zappa band and toured with Alice Cooper. That was the beginning of Flo and Eddie. Oh, no way. I didn't know that part. Did you know that, Richard? Yeah, I think they even played the Ritz Theater in Staten Island that I was running at the time. Oh, my gosh. You, you and Alice played, yeah, in that show. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was the Billion Dollar Babies tour in yeah. 73. Yeah, that was fun. I, I ran the Ritz Theater for the Anganos. Our parents may have crossed many times, Richard. Some, yeah, I know. So, so much over the years. It was great yeah. to get. Richard, so um, Woodstock, at the time, I'm assuming you didn't know it was going to be as big and grandiose as it is now in the culture, right? Well, I had a little more of an inkling of it. I had done Monterey Pop, and I had been on, on the road with the Who and stuff. And I saw all these people that said they were coming to Woodstock. And I had worked with hair. So I knew that that's how I knew them and got involved in the beginning. I was telling them, you're going to have a lot more people than you realize. And they said, no, we'll have maybe 20,000, maybe 25. I said, no, you're going to have a lot. So I kind of warned them ahead of time, but you know, it's, it's, you, we never even realized how big it would be. You know? And it was crazy because I had already gotten a job for 17 Esquire magazine doing a fashion show at this mall in New Jersey. And, and Were you morning, one of the models? What? No, no, no. I was doing projections for fashion show. I thought that's maybe where you met Jim. <laughs> in, in New Jersey, no. And um, the Esquire magazine picked me up in the helicopter Saturday morning, flew me back. We stopped in New York and brought uh, Billy Mitchell and, and uh, Steve Stills and, and Graham Nash to do the Dick Cavett show. They took me to the mall and flew me back in with the helicopter Esquire magazine. Wow. So I actually got to go and come back again. <laughs> Was it hard to keep everything going with all the rain and everything, all the equipment? Well, we were kind of covered where we were, you know, with the equipment. But it was just, it was just, you know, you were just soaked. You were wet. You were going to be wet, you know. How long did you sleep after Woodstock? <laughs> I don't sleep a lot anyway. So I oh, just, really? I kept going. Yeah, I, I sleep maybe five, six hours a day still, you know, at my age. But, um. I, I probably it took me a while to recover from that for sure, 
Yeah. And I had just done the Atlantic City Pop Festival before that, which was even better, you know, because there was no rain. It was much more organized. You know, we had a circular stage where we rotated the stage and everything. You know. Yeah. That was the festival month pretty much August that year. You know. So some of the fun one, one of my favorite question maybe is what are the some of the crazier gigs that you guys have played or remember playing through the years? Um, nutty venues or or crazy lineups, you know, standout performances. A lot of the ones I like are the ones of like, how the hell are we supposed to play in this? Place? I think my strangest day was a Saturday. I did J- Joan Baez at Fairleigh Dickinson University in the afternoon and Gigi Allen at the Stone Pony at night. Now, do you know Gigi Allen? Yeah, I brought on his drummer. <laughs> he, was a, he was a lunatic. He'd throw crap at people and, you know, this guy brought Gigi Allen to his company uh, Christmas party. <laughs> well, that was the strangest day doing Joan Baez and Gigi Allen the same day, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a definitely a transition of sorts. The, the sound guy, we locked ourselves in the booth because he tried to get into the booth. So we locked ourselves in the tables so we couldn't even get into the booth. But it was crazy. <laughs> How long was the Gigi Allen show? It would have been short, right? It was right after um, he got out of jail and just before he died. Oh. And it was, about, it was at least an hour show or more, you know. And it was wall to wall people, and he'd be running around, spinning his arms, and it would separate like, like there was a magnetic pull away from him, so people would separate this audience. No space, they'd separate around him as he ran around like a crazy man, you know. Did you know who he was before the show? I did an interview with him in his dressing room, and, you know, it, for a while, he was talking to me, and it was just normal. Then he went into the character. Then once he went on stage, it was a whole different, like, transformation he went through, you know? Yeah. It's strange to see what, you know. Oh, yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I've heard some of these stories. I mean, Richard, if anybody, you, you need to write a book. If you haven't already, you need no, I'm, I'm working on it called Seed and Music. And I thought it had been finished. And I'm trying to finish by the end of the year. What I'm doing is I wanted to have a book that could plug into a computer. So I was looking for like books that would have a USB hookup in it and nobody made it. So I patented the idea. Oh, so my book will be the first one with a USB drive in it that can plug into your computer and go online and everything else. And I've been sitting in my studio telling video stories. And what I'm doing is um, Maddie is the end of the book, you know, Maddie. <laughs> after, Years of working with artists and helping artists and everybody from Bon Jovi to other people I helped out. Meeting Maddie was like the ultimate performer. Well, you know Maddie, Jim, too. Yeah. yeah. And she, she's like a human jukebox. She's just such an incredible soul and talent at the same time. So the whole kind of end of the book is about meeting the ultimate performer, working with her and doing all these other projects. We're doing a thing called Enlightened Folk, where she's playing with an interview with famous folk musicians that we've been working on with a TV thing, you know. And so she, she's in, in Montana now the whole summer. And yeah, she's at the park working. I'm getting pictures of her. She's got some amazing pictures. Oh, I know. I, I just sent her video cameras out to shoot more stuff. <laughs> Do you have any stand-up performances that you remember, Jim, at odd places or special evenings? Or Well, a couple. A couple, I think. Well, the White House was one of them. I was going to bring that one up. <laughs> That's something that uh, I was uh, with the turtles. Well, yeah, with the turtles, we were tr- we were the we were Tricia Nixon, the daughter of Richard Nixon. Oh, wow. Turtles were her favorite band. 
So she invited us to play at her sweet 16 birthday party. Wow, that's a, I remember hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> and what made that fun is uh, well, the Secret Service guys took all our equipment apart on the East Wing steps and they heard a ticking sound. For the first of all, they were already suspicious of us. Long-haired hippies, you know, from Hollywood, California, during the war years. We had a new drummer, and that, and he he needed a metronome to keep to, to tell him the sound, the pace of the sounds. It had turned on during the flight, and they broke it apart, and they thought it might have been a, a bomb or something. <laughs> so they returned broken. Metronome and they gave him a check for 75 bucks, I think. He still has White House check. <laughs> That's and a good one. We played with the Temptations and the United States Marine Corps Band. Oh, that's incredible. And uh, she loved us and sent us a nice letter afterwards. So that was remarkable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 was, I played on the roof of a on the roof of a, house, of a of a gas station in Anchorage, Alaska. We did a show with Procol Harum. And, uh, oh, they, really? They were one of my favorite bands. They were awesome. I love those guys. BJ was one of my best friends. Really? Uh, yeah, oh, we were so close until he passed away. And I, I, I still know, you know, Gary, I knew too until he passed. Mm -hmm. well, they were one of my favorite bands, for sure. We had... It, it had snowed the night before our show, and we were on this roof, and it was it was not very substantial, and I almost fell in. One of my feet went through the roof of the building, and uh, <laughs> had to be pulled out. That that was something I remember. Is this why you went into football? <laughs> <laughs> well, football was worse. Was it? Yeah. What were yeah. you doing with the football stuff? You were doing videography? Yes. And, uh, I mean, you liked it because you did it for decades. Well, yeah. I started out as an office boy, just mail mailing Joe Namath posters and polishing the Super Bowl trophy on Monday mornings. That was my job. <laughs> why, did my... You leave, why, why did you leave music, though? Because... Uh, I got tired of it, and it, we weren't having hit records anymore. It became a, a job and not 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 any fun. But you were a football fan too. Yeah, I was a football fan. Okay, but I I took the job because <clears throat> I write about it in the book. I I met someone that I wanted to spend time with in New York, and I moved there. And just as I moved there, my friend who 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 was in the leads with me when we started. Uh, offered me a job as an office boy of the New York Jets football club, which he had taken for the summer. And now he's leaving it and he wanted me to fill in for him. But you're I living in L.A., right, at the time? Yeah. 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 But I, I got to New York and I said I'd do the job for a month and turned out to be 27 years. <laughs> That's great. Turned into an equipment manager, assistant equipment manager, and then... Uh, film coordinator and then cameraman and it's it's a long story but it's detailed in the book by the way it's pretty interesting we we Eubank was the head coach uh, at the time and and uh 
the coaches were getting their films on Wednesday and they needed to have them sooner than that. Um, and he wanted somebody on the staff to shoot the games. I didn't know anything about movies, but <coughs> I told him I was from Hollywood, California. And that's all he needed. <laughs> <laughs> I told him that, he said, do you know anything about movies? And I said, they call me Cecil B. DeMille Jr. in Hollywood. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to have you run the film department. So I had to learn how to shoot a camera and develop film. And, and that's how it started. I had, a, I had a camera that I had to hand wind between plays. And it's gone from that to video, now to digital, and it's 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 been a remarkable history the film department in the NFL. But I was there at the beginning. Now I found this little brief clip on YouTube, and it, I don't know if it was you, but it's uh, like "Happy Birthday, Jim Pons" is what it's called, and it it was a uh, you were sweeping the floor at the at one of the concerts, or one of the guys was sweeping the floor during the show. Uh, that, that doesn't that, ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. I'll try and find it and send it to you. It was a short clip, but I was wondering what the uh, what the show antic was where they were sweeping the floor during the middle of the show. So, I think it was turtles. I don't know that one. All right, um, and I, I did some research on you too, Richard. So I, I read a little bit. So um, you had had conversations with Janis Joplin. Yeah, what happened was. Um... I was doing a, a show at, at, in uh, Pennsylvania at Lehigh University. There was a blizzard. And it was Janis Joplin's big brother, Steve Miller band, and Wilson Pickett, his band. Oh. And they got snowed in for three days. So we all, and they put us in an old dorm for three days. And I just got to hang with Janis and everybody. I had, we had a lot of hash. So I had enough hash and passes for everybody to do. And we just all hung out with Steve Miller and, it was funny. I was going, I was driving to get some more power cords I needed. And it was a blizzard. And I'm driving back in my van. I see this guy looks like a giant snowman. So I pull over. And I said, you need a ride? And it was Tim Reed, the drummer from Steve Miller, who couldn't get to the gig. He flew there and he couldn't get there. So we brought him in. And it was just, we got snowed in for three days. It was a blast. You know? <laughs> well, the Wilson Pickett band, it was such a diverse group of, you know, Jazz and Big Brother and Steve Miller and his guys and then Wilson Pickett his band. Yeah. yeah, Wilson Pickett's amazing stuff. Yes. And then how did you get the Who gig? Well, um, I was doing shows with in um I, I did some shows with Miller, but I, I wound up doing the um when the Who came with Hermit's Hermits. I did those shows. And that's when I met the Who. And we kind of became friends and then when they came back for the second tour, they said, do you know where we can get any pot? The first show I did with them, I said, well, I only get hash. And their eyes lit up because that's all they do in England is hash. They said, well, when can you get it? And I said, well, here, take this out. You know? So they turned me on to a lot of the English bands, actually. They said, Paul, this guy does great lights. He does stage lights. He does light shows. And the day you get there, it'll turn you on to the hash you do, too. So <laughs> cannabis has always had a, a, a guidance in my like I've been doing cannabis festivals now too. I know wives of all of those too. Huh. But so that's how I, you know, and, and so we, I became friends with them and they were one of the bands like, yes, I helped get, yes, their first gigs. So when I wanted to do stuff, they'd give me the budgets I wanted to do lasers or, you know, I had the first black and white projectors with the Who doing Tommy. 
So I could be listening to you. I see the music. I could have the audience on the screen at the same time with the light show. Easy. I had 12 slide projectors, three moving projectors, three overheads, um, a black and white projector, same kind NASA had. Uh, these Kelly Victor projectors that NASA had at, at, at Mission Control. I had a black and white one. Had three cameras and a mixer, which is rare. I had real to real black and white and then real to real color videos I have of Hoosier and Tommy and stuff like that. No, yeah. shows, yeah. So I went through every, I started 16 millimeter, eight millimeter films, then got into half inch and three quarter and black and white and color, three quarter inch, two inch, one inch. I have every video format ever made concerts. <laughs> <laughs> every format <laughs> now it's all digital you know robotic cameras and everything i use now and stuff. have they all been transferred a lot of it some of the real to real stuff actually i have to go to smithsonian because they don't have the real to real black and white and color machines anymore that happen in sony ones but if i go there and they get a copy they'll copy it for me but they have to treat the tape is so old that they have to treat it first then when it's through so i'm trying to figure out had to get there and for four days or get it to them so they can copy all the old stuff, you know, three quarter inch stuff and, and other video stuff I have, you know, I have a lot of Betamax stuff of concerts. Okay. So when I first put together this podcast, um, I was hanging out at my friend's house. My friends have little kids. My friend's daughter was in elementary school and she said I should ask every guest when they first felt famous. And so I ask each of you, when did you first feel famous? If you don't feel you're famous, and I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't, that's up to you. It's up to you. But um, when would there be a moment in your career that I'll say switched things up, you know, that had that that moment of uh, inspiration or pushed you to the next level? What would each of you guys choose would be your moment? Well, should I go? Sure. I I guess it would be when we got our our first gig in Hollywood at Ciro's nightclub. That's where all the new 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 breed of hippies were hanging out everywhere there every night. And we were just San Fernando Valley kids and trying to, you know, act like musicians and when we actually re auditioned for the job at Ciro's when the birds went on the road and got the gig and we really were playing for those people that we were enamored with on Sunset Boulevard that's when I realized this this is taking off this is, yeah this is more than just a fraternity combo no this is more than just a, a a, a hobby this could be big and then pat boone signed us to a record contract so i guess it was the it was then right, right at the beginning for me that's good where did you get your first base when where i don't remember where but i bought i had a i had a band and none of us had any instruments and i had to buy them all so okay. i bought a I had a car accident and my insurance company gave me $1,100 and I bought a bass, a guitar, a set of drums and two amplifiers. And I picked out two of my fraternity brothers that had a good look. And I said, we're going to have a band. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. We started a band called the Rockwells. 
and uh, it grew from that. That's great. And what would be your moment, Richard? Well, I, I've never thought of myself as famous. I was always kind of the, the man behind the curtain, you know, philosophy that I've had. But one show that I remember that kind of hit it differently from which I, I was doing a lot of shows with the Who when they were wrecking their equipment and making no money. But then we, when we started, we played the Metropolitan Opera House, which was kind of big. But then we went to California and we played in San Diego at the 18,000 seat auditorium. And we were setting up all day and we went sailing stuff. And we were all backstage hanging out. And I walked out to go to the, the booth where I, my projection booth in the middle of the audience. I opened the door. That was a stage door. When I opened the door, people just started yelling. And it was so weird. I walked right back in because I wasn't used to the yelling, you know. But then Dad came. I said, come here, guys. They opened the door and the crowd just went nuts. And we, it was one of the things I'll never forget because it gave me an insight of how just to be with the Who, what it was like to be that way, you know. Then I walked out sheepishly with my spot and sat down, you know, embarrassed. <laughs> What's the story with the Who then with the with the song? Uh, it's like a mobile home or is the name of the song something like that? Well, I had one of the first Dodge bubble top motorhomes, and um, the Who wrote Go Mobile in it. I took it on on the Who's Next tour, and I had I could fit all my equipment, the projectors and everything, on the bottom of it, and we could sit on top of it. I had hammocks in in the ceiling of it, so you could sleep in the hammock. And instead of having a truck, we just, because the only equipment was so delicate, that's what we drove around on the tour with. So, you know, we, we'd be someplace. And then after the show, people want to go out and go drink and stuff. So I'd drive people around in the van in, in the motorhome. And that's where they, they, they oh, were mobile. going mobile. And then at the end of the tour, it finished in, in, in Philly, and they all bought giant Winnebago motorhomes. And had them shipped by boat to England after that. So that's how they, you know, that's the whole thing developed on that, you know. They just loved my little Dodge mini motorhome. And it said it was Gemini Light Show, so it had a Zodiac sign in the front window on the side. On the, on the side of the back, it had the Who Alive Tour. And and and, and uh, on the back said you're tailgating the Who's crew. <laughs> And it, so it, it died in, in uh, it's died in Europe or is it, who knows? No, no, my, my, what happened with my band, I was taking it to do a teacher's convention in New Jersey. And the guy put out in front of me, I turned it over. Oh, so it went from England and then back here? No, no, well, no this is in the United States. Oh, I thought you said it went to England. Sorry. Oh, oh no. They, they bought four mobile homes, uh, giant Winnebago's that were, you know, $40,000 each and had them shipped england for themselves after they had my little <laughs> after they saw my they said well we want bigger ones and they in philadelphia they bought them and shipped them by boat all the way to england and that's what they toured in europe with the mobile homes so they each had their own mobile home from there and then after that they always made sure they had one on the, in the states and stuff too you know huh. it's just the way they go in mobile developed you know yeah it's like the origins of the tour bus that's neat cool. they don't put their names on it anymore though no, no. <laughs> no well, I only un unknown bands, but only the lower bands put their names on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have a friend who owns American Coach, who who builds all the big tour buses, and what they're building are amazing now. Some of the stuff yeah. they have, yeah, they, you know. 
If you could do one more tour, which band would you pick, Jim? And Richard, if you had one more tour, who would you choose to work with? Of all the bands, of all the people. If I was in, you mean if I was able to? You could do a lineup of any of the groups you played with. Who who would the who would it be? What would the lineup be? Um, gee, I, I don't know. <laughs> if it's a bad question, you could just say your question sucks. <laughs> I, I enjoyed touring with Alice. I, I liked him a lot. They, we had a lot of fun. We did 102, 100, we did 91 nighters in 102 days. That's but, when he drank and stuff too, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he looked like he did. He always carried beer and VO whiskey around. And I, I never saw him actually drink, but oh. that was his image. You ever see him play golf? No, I never did. I understand he's a pretty good golfer. That and poker. That's what all the that's what I'm told all the time. Yeah, I know. Now we play played, poker with him. We played poker. We played poker on the airplane. We had the back of the airplane was turned into a casino. We played there every time we were on in the air. <laughs> I lost. I it. had a friend who was putting on concerts in New Jersey, and he booked um, John Mayo in the opening act. They they sent me the record and I said, this doesn't go. And and then, you know, I, the opening act got there and I said, they just they don't match up. And the opening act was Alice Cooper uh-huh. for John Mayo. Wow. And they get there and I you know, and they were all in a band, the whole band. And I said, uh <coughs> after the show, I said, Where are you guys staying? They said, Well, we just stay in the band. They stayed at my grandmother's house that night, about like ten minutes from the beginning in New Jersey. <laughs> that's yeah. what I first, first show I did with Alice Cooper you know then he played the Ritz and stuff like some other times and stuff too but <laughs> did you uh, ever work at the PNC Art Center Richard all the time all my huh. reunion friends were there. I was there all the time I, I helped put the video projectors down there when they did video projectors and I used to live in Keyport I could go go through the backstage in six minutes from my house did you have a son who worked in the industry too um, no, my son's a Lieutenant State Fire Department. He works in, in New Jersey, though, on a lot of the concerts and stuff. He might be thinking of something. At the PNC Arts Center, I remember there was a there was a fellow who I think looked like you, and his son worked in it, and his son's daughter was also in it, and they were all the crew. It was great. Oh, yeah. That's, um, what's um, oh, God. He worked with um, Clifton's sister. Okay, that yeah. sounds right. They're yeah, really nice just, people, like really good people. Yeah, Bill and his wife and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and they ran his his son worked there too. After and, uh, yeah. it was a good group. I knew all the union guys there. It was a whole group of people, especially in the Jersey Shore, between there and the Stone Pony was my home base. It still kind of always is, you know, Asbury Park does with yeah. where I did shows all my life. You know, how active are we on the painting, Jim? Active, yeah. Sales. No, 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 no. I mean, it can be if you want to be, but no, I'm just wondering if you're diligent about it. You mean how active I am as a painter now? Yeah, do you you paint oil? Do you do watercolor? Do you? Oh, I do acrylic. I'm a little bit intimidated by oils right at this stage of my career. I've only been playing about a painting about three years. I took a continuing education class with seven little old ladies at North Florida University. And the teachers had some talent and I started painting. That was about three years ago. That's great. And I got some nice ones. Yeah. 
Well, if you guys have any other stories, you're welcome to share them. But if not, uh, well, if not for now, might be a better way to put it. Uh, if not, <laughs> that's all you've got. <laughs> but uh, well, we could go on for a long time. I think. Yeah, yeah sounds like I'm it. sure. Yeah, but if you have any others that you want to make sure you mention, do it. Otherwise, um, where would be a good place to see your artwork, Jim? And then this young lady, Maddie, that you think is the bee's knees, and she's great. Where can we find Miss Maddie? And, yeah, uh, we'd like to get we'd like to finish the show with uh, Arvid and you again together, Jim. Maddie played with Arvid. At, at, I know. At, I would love to do that. You should tell him about that. That, that when we played with the John Lennon wannabe. Yeah, Where did you well, find this John Lennon guy? Well, I Maddie had wrote a song called "Dear John" that I kind of liked about thanking him for turning around to music. And this friend of mine who worked with Universal Studios, uh, Gary Petrovich, he, he was a film producer. Called me and said, My neighbor looks at the sounds and plays like John Lennon. Can you get him a gig? So I literally had the light bulb gone over my head and said, Let me do the show Imagine John Lennon with Maddie playing in. And we put it together in six weeks when Maddie was you know, doing archaeological digs in Crystal River for Native American stuff. And it was her summer vacation. But it was so much fun. We had such a great group of musicians with Jim and Harvard, Harvard Smith plays slide guitars and sitars and everything. He's just incredible. Amazing. And we have Phil Pan, who's a lead violinist for the symphony orchestra. So we had the whole symphony orchestra together. It was just unbelievable. So much fun, you know. And Good Maddie day. was Paul McCartney, and and this this guy looks sounds. We I took, we went to eat. Uh, Lynn Johnson and I, who looks like John Lennon, and people are looking at him. And I said, I bet you think Elvis is dead too. You know, he, <laughs> he looks just like him. Jim does. He was like, you yeah. know, he looked like him and sounded like him. It was amazing. Really, yeah. he dressed like him. That was fun. That was a fun gig. Yeah, that was really cool. It was just it was something like, you know, it's interesting when you have an idea that just can manifest that quickly and work. That's what kind of made that really fun. Let me know if you want to get together with me and Maddie and Arvid. Yeah, definitely. I, I know. In fact, she'll be around October. Let's maybe put something together. Okay. There somewhere, maybe there in Mudville or something. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much, guys. I look forward to talking to you both soon. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for interviewing us. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe by clicking the round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or the guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle's Joel Rody. And don't forget, when you party like a rock star, don't be a dick.